Process Safety with Trish and Tracy is a production of Chemical Processing. Chemical Processing focuses on serving engineers, designing, and operating plants in the chemical industry. Welcome to Process Safety with Trish and Tracy, the podcast that aims to share insights from past incidents to help avoid future events. This podcast and its transcript can be found at chemicalprocessing.com. I'm Tracy Purdom, Editor-in-Chief of Chemical Processing, and as always, I'm joined by Trish Kieran, the Director of the iChem-E Safety Center. Hey, Trish, how are you? Hey, Tracy, I'm doing well. I'm currently in Scotland. And last week, I was attending the iChemE Hazards 33 conference in Birmingham. So that was a very busy week, but a great week of conference talking a lot about leadership and culture and human factors, all the things I love. Wonderful. And we have a uh, webinar coming up with chemical processing on learning, creating a learning culture. So I'm hoping that you'll have some um, interesting concepts and, and thoughts for that as well. So looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. In today's episode, what well, we recently observed the 31st anniversary of the explosion that occurred at the Lamide refinery in the south of France on November 9th, 1992. As a result, six people died, dozens more were injured, and there was a financial loss of about $600 million. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened that day? Certainly. So it was a a standard fuel refinery. It had a range of different refining assets or utilities around the place. So they had a fluidized catalytic cracker as part of that particular facility, as well as a number of other crude units, reformers, etc. And what occurred that day was there was actually a quite a significant release of a flammable substance that occurred at almost about 5.20 in the morning. Then that subsequently set off some gas detector alarms that said there had been a release. But by the time the operators responded to it, and they responded very quickly, this thing got out of control incredibly quickly, there was an ignition source um, thought to be from a a nearby heater. And so corrosion had caused a a release from a pipeline on one of the the strippers that had uh, caused this massive explosion and subsequent explosions that resulted in, as you said, tragically the the loss of six people, but also some substantial equipment damage occurred that day. It was said that uh, the the explosion could be heard and seen and felt for kilometres away. An expert witness had claimed that the corrosion was foreseeable, pointing to the conclusion that management and maintenance were negligent. In 2002, the then president was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter and two inspection managers and two plan inspectors were also sentenced. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. The fact is that the hazard of corrosion is present in our facilities. We need to understand the metallurgy or the material of construction that we do have in our facilities. We need to understand how the substances inside those pipes react with with that material. Also understanding things like corrosion under insulation, which is external corrosion that will occur, but we can't see it because it's covered by insulation typically. So we do need to have some very structured and rigorous corrosion inspection programs. Because the fact is that corrosion is a foreseeable hazard. We know corrosion occurs. It's a simple law of chemistry that we can't get around. So we do need to make sure that we're adequately inspecting 
And that includes not only understanding the materials, but understanding the history of our facility. Are we seeing accelerated corrosion in some areas and not in others? Understanding the science of a corrosion maintenance program and making sure that we're inspecting the right areas in our plant because corrosion will be prevalent in some more areas than others. We also need to understand a range of other things like erosion. That also does occur as the product flows through the pipeline. It's a different mechanism to corrosion, but it, can, it creates effectively the same issue coming out the other end, where we thin the material that's containing our product, and then it's thinned so much it can no longer contain the pressure, and it's released. Now, the, the president was found guilty. Uh, the president of the company was found guilty in a court of law for being negligent in this instance. I think that's an interesting turn of events that, that has taken place, and, and one would question you know, the, the different people that were found guilty in this particular instance, because it was quite spread out throughout the organisation. You know, the plant inspector, whilst they are the ones out there actually inspecting and doing the work, how much control do they actually have with budgets potentially being set levels mm. above them? You know, setting the budgets not only for the inspection, but also for necessary replacement work. So I, th I think there's, you know, we need to be aware of, if we're going to go down that legal pathway making sure that it's just in what we do you know it's organizational factors lead to a lot of things occurring in an event and I think we need to be very careful about laying the blame at specific individuals for an incident so obviously a court of law in France did deem that they were guilty of negligence but I think we need to be a bit careful about pointing fingers and laying blame it doesn't necessarily help us fix the problem and get better at it in the future. We've talked about in many of our episodes, we've talked about control rooms and how they need to be bolstered to be able to withstand explosions. It seems to be the case here too. Can and should control rooms be mandated to be explosion proof? Well, that's a very interesting question, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> you always give me some really good ones, don't you? Look, it, I think we need to do detailed occupied building risk assessments to determine the consequence and what could actually happen if there is a credible explosion in a particular part of a facility. And ultimately, if you then do your risk assessment and that risk is intolerable, you have to do something about it. You need to be moving people to an area where you can actually protect them. Now, there are a number of ways to bolster uh, different buildings as well. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to knock everything down and go and rebuild a big concrete bunker, you know, hundreds of yards away and all that sort of stuff, because that potentially introduces some other issues of, you know, when the operators are so remote from the plant, how do they then respond to what's going on? I think we need to have a balanced approach. We do need to use risk assessment processes to do that. And there is some well-established guidance from API on occupied building risk assessments. I think one of the key things we need to keep in mind when we do occupied building risk assessments is that we don't make the assumption that uh, of our building occupancy based on normal operation because chances are if we're in an abnormal operation situation we probably then often have more people in the area so we need to make sure that it's a valid assessment for the number of people that we could have impacted in this and then make sure we adequately protect them. We can protect them by a range of different means. We could do things like just blast walls that are going to protect a building uh, or even just armouring the building so that 
at the end of the day, the building is going to be demolished, but it stands enough to keep the people inside it safe to deal with the initial emergency until they then evacuate. So there's a range of different options that can be done, as well as there's certainly some very um, high quality options in terms of container placement and reinforced containers I know that are on the market now, particularly in the US, I've seen a lot of those. So there's a lot of different options that we can look at here. We need to make sure that not only do we just focus on the building though, but the services that are feeding that building. So, you know, air systems into it, the electricity supply into it so that we can maintain control, the instrumentation lines going in and out of it so that we still do have control of what's going on. And then looking at how other parts of the facility could be impacted. In this instance as well, there was it basically the explosion took out the flare system. And so the, the fire brigade made the decision to actually control burn some of the facility because they, they couldn't adequately blow down hydrocarbons that were still in the line. One of the um, lessons learned that I read about while, while I was studying this for this podcast was to keep enough space between units to avoid any domino effect and to allow easier access to emergency services. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at. Um, what happens when this isn't always possible to have that space between units? Yeah, so if we were designing a plant from first principles from scratch and we have our blank piece of paper, we can choose, first of all, the important part of inherently safer designers. Are we choosing the right technology to put in in the first place? Are we choosing the more inherently safer design technology to put in? Once we've made a determination of what technology we want to put in, then we actually do need to look at how it's laid out. And if we're working on a blank sheet of paper, we can lay things out in a beautiful manner, lovely separation distances, lovely access roads, all sorts of fabulous stuff. Except we don't build a lot of brand new plants anymore. We're stuck with a lot of old plants. And in some instances where if there's a gap in a plot of land, something gets put in it and things continually get built up. Mm. So the reality is we have a lot of congested facilities around the world. And that means we need to think a little bit differently about how we do things. So it could be things like vapor barriers to prevent uh, leaks and vapor clouds moving into other areas of the plant. It could be things like explosion walls to prevent an explosion propagating further and that domino effect occurring. It could be things such as you know automated detection systems that there's been a lot of work done recently on the development of they're like uh, firefighting monitors but they actually spray out a chemical that knocks down the vapor cloud before it can have an ignition source. So it requires a lot of detection of what's going on and making sure your detectors are in the right spot. So, and then it responds very, very quickly. So it can actually blow out this chemical that prevents an explosion occurring because it's completely removed the flammable vapor. So there's a whole lot of different things we can be doing, even in our current congested sites, that we really need to be thinking about and making sure that we are applying good principled risk management design in what we're doing. You brought it up, the the detectors. What about gas detectors and sprinkler systems? Other things? Are, are there other things that we should be thinking about as well? Obviously, you know, the need to have good gas detection is critical in this instance. Keep in mind, we're only talking about, you know, the right-hand side of the bow tie here, though. We're talking about the mitigation and the emergency response when we're talking about gas detectors, sprinkler systems to knock down vapour clouds, other particular chemicals that can knock down vapour clouds. 
but that's still the mitigation. We need to also remember, we need to make sure we don't have the corrosion in the first place, mm. putting a hole in the pipe. So I just want to make that point again, keeping containment and keeping control of our systems that deal with our containment is what we actually have to do first. That's the most important part. Then if something does happen, how we respond is, is equally as important. So there is a range of different, as I said, new firefighting techniques, new prevention of vapor cloud techniques that a lot of work has been done on around the world. And there's really some quite interesting uh, new developments out there with these, as I said, I've, I've seen video of them, these massive cannons that just shoot out this, this chemical powder that effectively destroys the vapor cloud so it can't ignite then. It's not just only using the same tools and techniques that we've always used. New developments are happening all the time and we need to be looking at those and seeing does it make sense in our facility to actually put them in place. Trish, is there anything you'd like to add to this topic? I think the key point for me here is just really focusing on what are the new developments out there and how can we implement those in our facilities to keep our people and our facilities safer? You know, we work in a hazardous environment. We, ha- we face a range of hazards every day. We practice risk management to control those hazards. When something does go wrong, we need to be able to respond and we need to be willing to go back and reassess and say, you know, do we need to put in place some additional control measures because technology's improved and they're now available to us. These technologies weren't available back when this event happened in 1992, but they are now. So we should be looking, if you're running a refinery or a facility that could have a large vapour cloud, what are you doing to understand, do you have the right level of fire protection that's available with the technology we have today? Not just because it was right and it met the standard or the code when it was installed. That's actually not morally good enough in what we do. We need to be looking to what we do to reduce the risk, not just to tick a box on a code that now may be quite out of date. So it's really embrace risk management and implement effective control measures when they become available to you, rather than rely on the grandfathering of previous codes that are now out of date. Well, Trish, as always, you help us align our moral compasses and help us pay attention to both sides of the bow tie to keep people safe. And I appreciate that. Unfortunate events happen all over the world, and we will be here to discuss and learn from them. Subscribe to this free podcast so you can stay on top of best practices. You can also visit us at chemicalprocessing.com for more tools and resources aimed at helping you run efficient and safe facilities. On behalf of Trish, I'm Tracy, and this is Process Safety with Trish and Tracy. Thanks, Trish. Stay safe.